Right. So I am uh, James Walker. I'm the managing director of uh, BWD and we recruit solely within the financial services sector and we recruit uh, across the UK and also now internationally. So that's me. Ah, okay, so um, I'm Jo Guy. I'm the CEO of AJ Recruitment. Um, we're a specialist social care recruitment business. We provide frontline staff across Yorkshire and the Midlands to the private and voluntary sector. Uh, we tend to focus on a partnership approach um, and work with our customers to help reduce agency spend as a percentage of turnover, or we support in sort of hard to fill geographical areas or with sort of specialist um, skills. We do um, a small amount of perm recruitment, but it's mainly on um, sort of a retained basis. So should we get into the- uh, Yeah, then? let's get into the meat and bones of this, shall we? Okay, so um, what I was thinking about then, what do you think some of the key changes that we've seen across the world of recruitment over the last 12 to 18 months? Okay, I, I think from my perspective, I think the way that the world operates now is different in, in the way that world operates in terms of work, it is different. So what I've seen is a lot of uh, remote hiring moving forward, and I think that will continue. I think it's been a really interesting time. I think uh, it's given companies or our clients the opportunity to hire in different geographics, so they're not just fixed on having people coming into the office. So it, it's opened up, I think, uh, a new world of opportunities, um, and especially in a, in a talent short market, it's it's given you know clients and, and employers the opportunity to to hire uh, at pace and in different locations as well, where normally we were quite restricted in terms of they needed people in London or they needed people in Leeds or other you know, cosmopolitan cities. I think the way that the world works now has created more opportunity and in a, in a talent short market, I, I think that is a real, um, if there's any benefit to the post COVID world, I would say that is one benefit that we are seeing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, also sort of in addition to that, there's sort of there's definitely more sort of focused as well on technology um, and automation. And I think I don't know about you, James, but we've been really focused sort of on our sort of tech stack for sort of a number of years. Um, however, the sort of priority for us now is around sort of more productivity. Um, and in the last 18 months, um, we've actually been um, developing our own app called Temp Rewards. Um, and it's basically sort of a tech solution that gamifies work and it improves again engagement and sort of social mobility. And that's really key in our market now. Um, again, it's candidate sure, and there's currently um, 165,000 vacancies. And sort of our app is focused around, you know, helping um, temps to do their job and they get temp coins for doing this, that they can mm. kind of trade sort of in our eco space. But the main focus is to improve that sort of productivity back office. Um, through sort of creation of a self-managing workforce. So I think you're right in terms of sort of workforce and, you know, the design of that and the changes, it's quite different from the expectations. And do you think people have, you know, uh, employers out there, do you think they've worked on their employee value propositions a lot more as well to actually attract and retain new members of staff? Definitely, definitely. I mean, I think, you know, if, if I think about sort of, you know, our sort of workforce, you know, we're very focused now on making sure that we sort of hire people where their sort of purpose and their personal values sort of align, you know, with our company. And I think that's really important, particularly sort of in um, generation sort of Z. 
And I think, you know, the value proposition that sort of goes along with that. I mean, interestingly, I was reading some CIPD research um, and actually um, their last report shows that sort of pay and benefits has again winged its way back to the top. So I think it was about fifth. Mm. Um, but I think that's kind of cost of living and all the rest of it. But we've also done quite a lot of design in terms of around sort of our bonus um, sort of um, structure as well. And that's all linked not only to sort of outputs and what people deliver, but it's about the way they behave as well. And I think that's really important because that sort of fundamentally underpins your sort of workforce culture, which I think is really key. Yeah, I think we are living in very interesting times. Um, I, I do sometimes think that, you know, the, the dial has gone a little bit too far towards the employer because it's almost um, we need to try and strike the right balance in terms of supporting, attracting and retaining people. But it sometimes feels as an employer, if I look at it from my own perspective, that we are trying to perhaps you know, we, we do a lot for the employees and I don't know if the dial's gone a little bit too far and there just needs to be a balance in terms of expectations and the commercialities. Um, and I, I think that's something that I, I do wrestle with um, in this mm -hmm. post-COVID world. Um, you know, sometimes I feel if you're asking people to come into the office, because a lot of us work from home now, it, it's almost... Um, you know, they, they can almost say, well, okay, I can if, if, if I'm not, you know, dog sitting or whatever. So before that wasn't an issue. So I think there are some, um, you know, interesting takes in the post-COVID world, but there, there is a feeling for me personally that maybe the dial's gone a little bit too far. We just need to get that perspective back where it's fair and equitable to both the employer and the employee, but that's me. Yeah, no, I think, and we were sort of talking about this a little bit earlier, but I think one of the things that's really played into this is sort of um, mental health. And I was sort of saying to you that, you know, the strain is sort of um, felt sort of really heavily sort of among sort of the younger generation. So particularly when we're looking at the gen sort of Z. Um, and I think, you know, um, globally, this particular, you know, sort of generation report having sort of mental health conditions um, and almost three in 10 say they're prone to sort of anxiety. And that's a higher proportion than any other sort of um, age group. Um, and I think the, the main reason that this has sort of happened to this group is that, you know, it's been partly influenced by sort of um, social media. Um, and I think, you know, that's, that's a real sort of problem that we've got to wrestle with. Um, but it is, it's really difficult, you know, as an SME, you know, what do you put in place, you know, to support um, sort of these individuals? And this is something that we're looking at at the moment in terms of well-being, you know, and what what do we need to do? What is right to do? Um, and what can we manage as a business? You know, so we're looking at things like mental health first aiders um, and so forth. But, you know, as you say, it's a real, um, you know, kind of strain and it is quite difficult, you know, to manage those things alongside all the other responsibilities. Do you think when we started there was that intergenerational difference so the generations that have gone by they looked at us when we started say oh you guys are so different you've got it so much easier than we had do you think it's it's always happening to a different sort of degree or level i think i think there's some um, element of that but i think if you go back to the kind of social media piece again because people are more aware it's the awareness piece you know that i think is different and I think it's, you know, people have um, expectations now in terms of what they expect in terms of support, you know, and help. So I don't think it's that, you know, we 
there was maybe sort of less people, but it was less talked about. Yeah. Um, you know, so as an employer, it wasn't really at the forefront of what people had to manage or support people with because it just wasn't discussed, you know, very much. You know, particularly if you think about men's sort of mental health, that was a real taboo sort of area. Yeah. You know, so I think there has been changes, but it's more around, you know, sort of people being aware now. So it's that awareness piece. And with the data that you know, obviously, because you've a bit of an expert on this, and I'm interested because I've got a daughter who's who's 13. Um, with the level of anxiety that's shown, is it more prevalent in a particular gender? So teenage girls than it is teenage boys? No, it's really interesting. So um, the stats are sort of um, fairly sort of even. Um, the only thing um, that goes on in girls is that girls are really good at masking um, things. So, you know, if you've got a girl that's maybe sort of on sort of the edge of the sort of autistic spectrum, as an example, you know, she will um, most likely function quite normally um, in sort of, you know, a, a kind of normal education setting because girls are so much better at masking things than boys. I mean, uh, my son is 19 now, but he's got ADHD. And, you know, he could, he didn't mask at all. You know, um, and a boy's characteristics are very much, you know, if I'm facing something, particularly as a, as a child, I think we, we learn as adults to, to mask things. But as a child, it was very much this is what I'm facing and this is the behaviour that's a result of that. Um, so I, I think, you know, it's very similar, but it's just it comes up less, it crops up less in girls, you know, particularly in that kind of education setting. You know, so it's maybe not uncovered until they get to sort of, you know, sort of um, secondary or higher education. And that's where it's potentially picked up. Mm. But as business owners, we have these uh, this balancing act to contend with on a day to day basis. And I think it, it is difficult because you want to genuinely look after people and care for them and make sure you know they're okay but when also not experts in no. this and I think that that balance of trying to do the right thing and also the commerciality of you people need to be productive is hugely difficult and it just seems so prevalent everywhere um, so I, I think it's a case of you know I always look to people who have got experience in this I look to other sort of business owners in terms of what they're doing and ultimately it's a case of just modeling through and trying to do your best yeah. um, notwithstanding the fact that I sometimes think that you know maybe that dial's gone a little bit too far that we are the the answers to everything and unfortunately we're not yeah I think that's also the byproduct of you know running an SME isn't it you, ha you have to wear several hats <laughs> You know, that, that's true. Um, but, you know, it's about kind of, you know, outsourcing, isn't it? And getting in that kind of expertise where sort of needed. I mean, I was saying to you earlier that we've just brought in a sort of chief of people. Um, and, you know, sort of the reason behind that is because we just realised we didn't have that expertise, you know, sort of in um, the existing workforce. And at the end of the day, I believe that, you know, people are the engine of your business. Um, so it's really, really important that you do the right things at the right times to make sure that you've got that engagement really high um, and that obviously uh, you can retain people as well, because we both know it's a really competitive sector. So, yeah, yeah we've sort of prioritised that going forwards. Good. And hopefully I mean, I people appreciate it. Sorry. sorry, go on. I was just saying, I hope people appreciate it as well. Yeah, I think so. I think so. So what, what do you think, James, the, the future is going to look like, you know, sort of the next 12 to 18 months? 
I, I love these questions because I think it's extremely, well, it's impossible to predict, if I'm honest. I think, you know, I work in financial services. So I, I think um, if I look at it from that perspective in terms of the, the economics, um, I'm hopeful rather than a prediction that we have some kind of stability in the markets, um, whereby there are sensible decisions made by our governing uh, politicians, because we've seen back in the last year when um, Liz trusted her budget and it created a, a mini crisis in the bond market. So I am hopeful that we can have some kind of stability over the next 12 to 18 months from an economic uh, perspective, but it is then overshadowed by a geopolitical um, scenario that which I've I've never really seen before. And sometimes I feel that we're on the precipice of some, you know, unfortunate times ahead. So um, I think that's something very, very difficult to predict because we are in uncharted territory. Um, and I'm just hopeful that people make the right decisions. Um, so from a, an economic point of view, hopefully sensible decisions from a geopolitical, let's, let's pray that, you know, sensible solutions are uh, achieved. Um, but I also think, you know, from a recruitment perspective, you know, it's still talent short. It always, you know, it hasn't always been, but it has been, you know, for a long period of time. And um, that does create opportunity for recruiters to really um, promote and push their products and services. Um, mm -hmm. And my view is when some companies retract and go backwards for whatever reason, other companies look as an opportunity. And that's what you have to focus on as a recruiter. So um, I, I think I'm, I, I remain optimistic, Joe. Um, mm -hmm. It's the best thing for me to to be. Um, but I'm also conscious that there are things at play which are outside of my control. Yeah. Um, but what I can control is obviously what we do here on a day-to-day -day basis. And we'll just focus on that and then just let the higher level stuff play out. Yeah, no, I think it's it's interesting, isn't it? And I would sort of agree with you in terms of the stability piece and remaining optimistic. The only thing that... Um, so I'm part of basically um, sort of, it's like a Vistage um, sort of type group. And, and we met last week um, and basically it's non-competing, you know, sort of um, organisations that are its members. Um, and what they did sort of say, they always do sort of a temperature check, you know, at the start of the meeting. And for the last sort of, you know, even sort of six to nine months, you know, even with all the things we've faced, it'd been sort of fairly consistent. And people were sort of scoring their businesses as an eight or nine. Um, but in the last um, sort of meeting, a number of people, you know, those scores, the average scores were sitting between six and seven. Um, and if you remember in the meeting that we were in the peer group um, session sort of last week, I think um, Gordon shared, didn't he, a poll? And I think that showed sort of November, December, that I think it was from memory, just under 50% of the members had a business score of eight and above. And then versus March 2023, where this has dropped to a third. And that's quite a significant change. And I think, you know, a couple of the members in sort of my networking group, they're from sort of the manufacturing industry. Um, and they reported sort of a 10% drop in sales in the last few months. Um, and that sort of industry is often sort of a good barometer um, of what's ahead. So um, I do sort of think that, you know, Although I'm optimistic, um, I do sort of feel that there's going to be sort of further bumps in the road and, and sort of challenges. And one of the other members there, he runs sort of an HR sort of business. And so it's an outsourced um, business. 
Um, and what he was saying is that their London team, um, their sales have really dropped off um, and that they're really sort of struggling. And what they're reporting is that it's harder to get deals over the line. So there's still interest, um, but customers have been sort of less decisive. Um, and in the North, that's not yet trickled through. Um, but what he said is the pattern usually is that, you know, obviously it follows from London, you know, kind of up. So, you know, as you've sort of said, as a recruiter, you know, we've got to look at the opportunity in the market. And as I said earlier, you know, our market's got 165,000 vacancies. Um, and by 2035, we're going to need um, an additional 480,000 people. Um, so, you know, it's our job you know, to kind of find those creative solutions and ways, you know, to work with our customers, I think, to really reap that benefit. No, that's interesting points there. I, I think a lot of it boils down to confidence as well, because yeah. if there's confidence, you're, you're, that sentiment will will seep through. But I, that goes back to my point about making sensible decisions from a, an economic uh, policy point of view. So I do think that is, you know, I, I think that's interesting at the moment. And but what I feel is you, if you go out, you go into the pubs and the clubs and the restaurants, they're still packed out. People yeah. are still spending money, maybe not to the level that they were, but there is still some kind of feel good factor and there is money in the in the pockets of people. Um, and I don't think this crisis in terms of uh, living crisis has affected those as much as the, you know, the, the, the lower end in terms of the scale. So I, I think there are... Um, sentiment is still pretty good out there there's still pockets of activity etc um but as i said before we've just got to look at the ones who are looking at this time as an opportunity to grow as well yeah. but as you say if, if your sector is needing you know another two to three hundred thousand people that's significant yeah so there needs to be investment and there needs to be uh, an opportunity surely for, for for you yeah i think i mean it's it's interesting is the social care market because it's always been sort of chronically you know, sort of underfunded. Um, and I think, you know, so cost of living has really sort of hit our workforce really hard yeah. and our clients really hard. So if you run, for example, a residential or nursing home, not only have your kind of food bills gone up around 18%, but also, you know, your kind of heating and, and energy prices, you know, just kind of off the scale. So I think, you know, it is um, quite a concern in our sector. And I think, you know, one of the things that I'm mindful of, and we've kind of you know, sort of highlighted this on our business risks is, you know, what would happen, you know, with a potential sort of change of government in the future and what will happen, you know, if social care budgets continue to be cut and, you know, the money that was earmarked, you know, for the sector is continued to be sort of cut back. I think it's going to be definitely an interesting space. But I was just picking up on, um, you were talking about obviously confidence um, and that kind of ties quite nicely into I was thinking about that in relation to sort of the focus now on sort of new business development. And I don't know about from your perspective, but, you know, do sort of recruiters actually enjoy new business development, do you think? Um, um, I mean, one of the things I was thinking about is that there's a big issue around confidence, you know, and recruiters have been working for several years in a candidate short market and they're out of practice. Yeah. Okay. Good question. All right. Um, I, I think my view on this is um, I, I think if you view business development and you're talking to consultants and recruiters about, you know, cold calling, that's not going to fill them with joy. Um, and I'm not sure whether that is a, a 
particular process which is going to have a meaningful outcome. Um, so I think what I would be doing is looking to understand what, what is business development and what do we need to get from it? Because I think, you know, in business, it's a series of, of trade-offs. If you're asking consultants to do business development and you understand the mechanics of doing business development with all the different channels available to you, then you are sacrificing other parts of the recruitment process, which they can't do because they just don't have the time. So I think the question of do they enjoy business development, I think is an interesting question. I think what we need to do is understand what business development is. My belief is a recruiter should be out there spotting opportunities because they're talking to people. There are hiring requirements or they're seeing companies where they've got some, you know, interesting growth plans, et cetera. And as a recruiter, you need to be tuned into that, into your market. But if you're asking them to make 50 to 100 business development calls, then what is the outcome of that? And do we, do we actually look at the KPIs and the outcomes? And I think sometimes we don't understand what BD is, but we'll just yeah. say, just get on the phones, which is how we started. Just get on the phones and make some calls and see what happens. I think BD is a process. And I think it forms part of a larger cake with marketing and sales. And really, I want my guys to be picking up leads and opportunities rather than thinking I need to do some BD, not yeah. quite knowing or understanding the mechanics and the process because without a process it won't work anyway yeah no I agree with that I mean I think you know I cast my mind back you know to when I started in recruitment and all I had I'd got very in fact I don't think I got any training but I got a phone the yellow pages and I had my Rolodex and it was just I was told to call through and generate business you know and how things have kind of moved on you know the way that we sell has changed and I think you know there's much more um, sort of focus now on sort of insight selling um, and I think the thing with with that particular thing is that recruiters do actually lack the skills potentially required to do this um, but I do agree with you I think um, what's really important to have a clear um, sales strategy um, you know and then look at the team that you've got um, and look at what is required then to deliver to that sort of strategy um, and I think, you know, one of the decisions that we've sort of made um, is that, you know, although we use sort of TRN, we also use Juice for CPD, but we have decided to sort of invest some sort of specialist outsource sales training, invest in some of that. Um, and the main focus for it really is going to be around building confidence and competence, you know, so that people are geared up and able to thrive, you know, in the new environment that they sort of find themselves in. Because I think with anything, James, if you don't enjoy it, you're not going to do it. Mm. You know, that's absolutely critical to anything we do in life, isn't it? You know, and, and when I talk to sort of, you know, I do quite a lot of work with, you know, sort of young um, sort of youngsters that are looking to set up, you know, their own business. And one of the things I say to them is, you know, you don't need to have, you know, all of, you know, these things. The most important thing that you need is to find something that you enjoy and then the rest of the things will follow that motivation, that drive, that resilience. So enjoyment, I think, is sort of the key ingredient in this. It is. And I, and I think, you know, enjoyment is is crucial, but also people need to understand the need to spot opportunities to do business development, because that's the growth of the company. I just think the term is misunderstood. Yeah. when we talk about business development i think it can be just 
you know, you ask 10 people, you'll probably get 10 different responses to what is business development. And then that just muddies the water in terms of what you're trying to achieve. I do think there are people who, um, certainly within my business, who are focused on the business development aspect, but they work with sales and marketing. It's that yeah. sort of process uh, behind the scenes to create the opportunities. Because I am conscious if you're asking consultants to do BD, mm-hmm. they potentially will not be doing other parts of the job. Yeah. Which is important in terms of the, the CVs and the, the other metrics and the outputs that are required. So I, I do think BD is important. And I go back to it. Everyone's got to have that sort of mentality to spot opportunities. But I think BD in its purest form is a level of, you know, tactics and a strategy and a process that should be done more centrally within the business. No, I agree. And I, I think, you know, I was just thinking about sort of marketing and, and how that links in and, you know, do you think that sort of the marketing piece is a distraction to recruiters or do you think it's sort of business critical? I, I think I think it's both. I think it's quite right to say it's both. I think it is, I think it is a distraction because if you look for a consultant to create a piece of added value content that you know takes time and thought required so that is a distraction because again they are focused on doing that not necessarily filling jobs so that metrics um affected but in terms of the you know is it business critical absolutely it's a noisy market out there so how are you going to showcase what you can actually do and i'm totally in agreement with insight selling that's a positive thing to do so i do think it is a distraction and it can be a distraction but again that goes part into the you know the wider question of bd i think marketing should be a function of business development um, and have people focused on that to generate incoming leads and that's where i want my guys to just focus on the leads that are coming in rather than perhaps my take is to train them to be good at another part of the job because i just think it's too much we're asking so much of recruiters to be you know, counsellors, marketeers, business developers, etc. And I think it's very, very difficult to do. So I think it is both. I think it's absolutely critical. And I'm very, very um, uh, an outspoken person on marketing, but it's got to be value content. Otherwise, it's vanilla and it won't get picked up. And you're just saying things in a particular echo chamber, which you won't get the results from. Yeah, no, I, I agree with, with a lot of that. I mean, it is um, business critical but as you say it can be a distraction and I think one of the things that we've recognized in our business is the importance of sort of marketing sort of automation um, and we've just sort of invested um, in a tool that will ensure that marketing is working sort of 24-7 for us um, and that you know it's that automation piece that's doing the hard work doing the legwork so that your team you know don't have to do as much of that and that distraction sort of element is sort of reduced and I think, you know, one of the things that um, I'm hoping, because we're in early days of rollout that our marketing automation tool will bring, is that it should give us sort of a matrix and hard numbers that basically score sort of engagement in our content. Because as you say, you know, you don't want it to be vanilla, but unless you can actually kind of measure the engagement in the content, that's quite difficult, you know, to do. And then it'll allow us hopefully then to sort of grade and determine sort of who we interact with. So where do our recruiters sort of spend their time and energy? Um, You know, also it'll allow us obviously to speak to a wider um, sort of audience. Um, It will tell us, and we we don't, we know some of these metrics now, but we'll understand from engagement to conversion, how long this takes. It will measure every stage. 
Um, and our plan is basically to use it to attract candidates and customers, um, you know, and sort of automate sort of all of those interactions, sort of giving us productivity savings. Um, so hopefully that kind of reduces the noise around it. And then we, our sales, you know, consultants basically get those marketing qualified leads that are juicy, that they can take forward and that they can take forward to conversion. And I think that's really important. So, yeah, we've we've put quite a lot of investment behind marketing. We've, we've done the same with automations, behavior scoring, using certain tech to allow us to understand the um, the behaviors of clients and candidates and actually see what they like and what they don't like. So we've been doing that this year and the results are uh, are coming through and clearly some things really work and some things don't. So you do have to be- to work or don't they? I know when we've been doing the AB testing, you're like, wow, that's interesting. It's yeah. weird. Some things I think, oh, that's gonna be really good, just doesn't work. Um, yeah. And some things I think, really? a bit meh and then suddenly you get a, a high um, engagement rate so I think you, you need to have a process but you need to analyze the results and quickly change as well but I do think where we are now compared to 10 years ago you know we should be looking to adopt this and integrate it into a business because I think it's a, a great opportunity for every recruiter uh, rather than just send 100 in-mails etc and then not even see what gets opened or liked or, or whatever so I, I think it's I think it's great, but it can be a bit of a distraction too, because you become into like, a, you know, marketing theorists and you really get into the creative side. You want to do some videos and some sound effects and it's like a Hollywood production. Yes. And you think ultimately you've got to think about what the outcome do you actually want from this as well. Mm -hmm. So some of the marketing conversations I have, honestly, we just create new worlds. It's brilliant. And then you yeah. think practically it's going to take about four months to do that. So you have to then just try it back a little bit. Yeah, whereas back in the day, I think, you know, the focus was how many mail shots have you sent? Yeah. And that was as sophisticated as it got. So, yeah, we've, we've moved forward sort of hugely, haven't we? Do you get quite a lot of automation where it's quite vanilla, though? So do you get them on LinkedIn where you get like a, an invite request and then you get somebody selling you something straight away? So it's, it's, it's not, it's so cold. It Absolutely. Really is, yeah. And I think, you know, latest sort of research and sort of shows it's actually now 12 touch points you know, um, that people need to, and that goes back to the kind of Gen Z stuff as well, in terms of how those people buy, you know, it's all got to be backed up by, you know, are you authentic? Do I know you? Do I like you? Do I trust you? And I think that's why kind of things have evolved. You know, people want to, to buy things on the basis of that other people are saying this is a good thing to do. You know, whereas again, back in the day, that just wasn't the case. So yeah, agreed on that. Where, where does that level of professionalism start and stop though because it being your authentic so how much do you show yeah, your audience it's a difficult one isn't it i mean you know sort of linkedin again sort of over the time that we've changed this as sorry used it has changed sort of hugely and i think you know th these are the debates that we're having sort of internally at the minute you know because the algorithms you know like sort of personal content but where as you say do you draw that line how do you make that work and i think we're still you know, sort of trying that out, you know, and experimenting. Um, but, you know, and then as soon as you've kind of got that and, you know, you're getting the right, you know, people contact and it will change again. So that's yeah. the thing, isn't it? It's a, it's a fast moving space, um, you know. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely a challenge, isn't it? Ever changing, Joe, ever changing. Absolutely. 
So in terms of moving on to something slightly different then, James, so do you think a recruitment business um, should be a retained partner to an organisation or do you think they should sort of stay as a sort of contingent supplier? Um, okay. Ideally, ideally, in a perfect world, retained because it's guaranteed income. So um, about 25 to 30% of our business is retained mm -hmm. um, and it works well. You get a better level of service. Um, the commitment's obviously there. It's just better all around for all parties. So I'm, I'm a huge advocate of retained business. Um, the markets that we work in, unfortunately, I say unfortunately, um, they are uh, managed by sort of big RPOs and MSPs. And I think, unfortunately, that can detract the level of service you give to the end client. So we normally brought in because there are specialist hires to be made, but we have to go through a certain process. So yeah. if I speak to a hiring manager, they would say, guys, would love to work with you on a retained basis because we know what we're going to get. But then it goes through the bureaucracy of the, the, the machine and it then becomes more uh, complicated and harder to sign off. So unfortunately, that's the way some of these bigger organisations work. So we've yeah. only got so much influence. So huge advocate of retained work, huge advocate of the, the RPOs that we've been doing for clients as well. Um, that really works. It's a plug and play. They use us yeah. for multiple highs. We go in, we go out, and we provide a great service. So everyone wins. But I think the realistic part is other companies are harder to influence to get on a retained basis just because of their process. So sometimes we have to work within those constraints. But yeah, huge advocate of retained work. Absolutely. It's a no-brainer for me. Yeah. I think it's difficult. I mean, in our market, we face um, sort of similar challenges, but because obviously social care is sort of underfunded. Um, what we've um, sort of done, we've made the business decision not to work through sort of the, the bigger agreements, the vendor agreements, you know, the sort of PSLs that are in place because the margins are just so poor. Um, so we've had to kind of redefine, you know, what is our sort of target customer? What is the avatar? Um, and what we're sort of working on is trying to target, you know, those sort of smaller organisations between sort of 10 and sort of 50 million. Um, because they're sort of um, typically too small to have those sorts of arrangements in place. But at the same time, they want an arrangement that gives value back, you know, to sort of the, the organisation. So we've sort of um, worked in terms of designing a product. And I think it's very much about products. So we've got our talent partnership and our total talent partnership. And typically, so the talent partnership would be looking at sort of um, a niche sort of um, hire. Um, or number of hires, I should say, for the organisation over a short period of time, but there'd still be a retained um, element in there. Whereas the TTP would be looking at their sort of talent across the whole piece, you know, all of the roles that they kind of recruit for. And typically we would run that type of agreement for sort of three years um, with a retained piece sort of um, built in. And at the moment, sort of about 40% of our business is retained. But I think what we're what we're definitely finding is that the pool of um, organisations for us to work with, you know, is is kind of quite small because it is quite niche. So that's where, you know, going back to kind of the business development strategy and the marketing that backs that up, we've got to be really targeted in terms of who we're getting inbound so that we're not sort of wasting time on sort of the bigger fish. And the outsource using these agreements where the margins are just, you know, we just couldn't work on them. 
you know, because we're paying people sort of in and around national minimum wage. It's just not feasible, you know, for us to sort of do that. So no, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, but yeah, I would say definitely um, retained as much as we can. But I do think there will always be a place for specialist pieces um, for contingent. Yeah, I totally agree. And also, I think there are consultants who quite like the contingent model because they've worked in that environment for so it's many years. Isn't it? Yeah, and it's a mindset. Yeah, and I think sometimes when you are on a retained, you have to deliver. You know, where a contingent, it's spot trading a little bit. Yeah, and you can say, oh, you know, that didn't work, but I'm working on this now. It's a little bit of the magpie effect. Um, you know, we get attracted to shiny new stuff. Um, but I do think the um, retainers are great. But you do need to also have the right consultant mindset to be able to deliver. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a, it's a process that we're going through um, here at, uh, you know, at my company. So, yeah, but I, I totally agree. Contingent for the right client can work as well. And if yeah. you're, you know, if it's exclusive and it's only working with you, then why would you not? Yeah, exactly. So I think you've got to be realistic and commercial about these things. Yeah, no, I think I think you're absolutely right. And it's about making sure that you've got really good product offerings um, and that they're really defined and that your whole team understand what they are. And they're again, going back to that confidence piece, that they're confident, you know, to take that, you know, to sort of, you know, potential, um, you know, sort of prospect customers of the future, um, you know, and have those kind of discussions. Um, but yeah. Well, I'm just conscious um, that uh, James were um, drawing sort of close to time. So um, don't know about you, but I've really enjoyed that um, sort of discussion. And um, yeah. Likewise, Joe. It's good to see you, fellow Leeds recruiter as well. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's really cool. When, when you were on my peer group, I was really pleased. I was like, I'm sure he's from Leeds. There's <laughs> <laughs> a flat cap and the tweed, was it? Yeah. <laughs> I won't say what gave it away. Yeah, don't, don't. Let's keep it, keep, keep us on a high shelf. Yeah, checked you out on LinkedIn, that lovely uh, place that gives us all that insight. But yeah, this is it. This is it. No, it's been great to talk to you today. And uh, I think there's been hopefully some value points raised in this. And uh, I think it's an incredible time to be a recruiter at the moment. I think there's a great opportunity out there. But I also think there are areas that uh, recruiters, we need to improve our business practice, product services, the process. It needs to be done properly. Um, and those that do, I think they'll make a killing. Absolutely. No, agreed.